Okay, it is time to start, so let me open us in a word of prayer, and we'll get going here. Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. We ask that you would be with us uh, tonight, and um, Lord, we're just so thankful we get an opportunity to come and study your word. Uh, we want you to be pleased and uh, praised and elevated in what we do here. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So we're going to be starting in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 16, verse 16 to begin with. But since it's been a while since we were together, I thought we just might have just a brief, brief review. And uh, up to this time, we have looked at how many kings? What do you think it is? Yeah, you see that? 13 altogether. So, 13 altogether. So, that's four. We're getting ready to do four here. Um, and and uh, nine for Kings of Israel. And so, we're going to add a couple more to those. Now, since. Uh, the kings of Judah are the shorter list. Can you remember the names of those kings? Just talking about the kings of Judah. Start out with the first one. That's an easy one. Rehoboam. Then who's this man right here? Who's his father? It's a, it's a long name. Jehoshaphat. So we got Rehoboam, we got Jehoshaphat. Then Jehoshaphat's father is a short name, Asa. And then you have Rehoboam's son. And he actually has two names. It starts with an A. <laughs> That's not very helpful when you're talking about these kings. There's probably half a dozen of them start with an A. It is Abijam or Abijah. He goes by both of, both of those names. And one of the things that we need to remember that might not always be obvious as we're going through 2 Kings here, but we should always be mindful that... Um, there is special care taken by God in the preservation of David's line. Okay, and this will be in the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. But God takes special care to make sure that David's line is preserved in Judah, in the southern kingdom. In the northern kingdom, that is not so. We've already seen several different families who aren't related uh, to David who have ruled. And, and you got Jeroboam and his little dynasty. Then you have Baasha and his little dynasty. And you got Emery thrown in there. Then Omri and his uh, dynasty, which we're actually still in here this evening. Um, but that's always good for us to remember that when we're talking about the kings of Judah, God is preserving the Davidic line uh, through the kings of Judah. And we will actually look at a little bit about why that is uh, this evening. Now, in the past few lessons, we have, always, uh, we have all, um, also taken quite a bit of time to look at the ministries of, at this time, the two main prophets Israel. Now, there was a number of prophets in Israel, but the two main prophets were Elijah and Elisha. So we take it, we've taken a good bit of time to look at them. But right now, we're going to start to get into the, the kings that their reign corresponds to the writing prophets. So the ones that we have in our Bible. And um, it, it's not a bad practice as you go through these kings to read um, the prophets that correspond to the reigns. Now, for some of them, that can be quite long because Isaiah is a prophet and he's got 66 books. Um, 
and, and a couple of the big ones stack up there at the end, don't they? Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they kind of just stack up there at the end. And uh, <clears throat> if, if you can't read those, then uh, find a good study Bible and look at the, look at the outline that they give you. <laughs> and that'll give you a good understanding of those books as we go through them because it's, these things go together. Um, what we have here in Second Kings and those prophets. Um, what, what we also should recognize, with, especially with Elijah and Elisha, is the presence and activity of these two prophets tell us something. So let me ask you a question. At least the first question is, where did most of their ministry take place? In the north or the south? The north. In the north. That most of their ministry involved the northern kingdom. Now think about that. God is preserving the Davidic line in the southern kingdom. And yet you have these two prophets where most of their ministry is focused towards the northern kingdom. What do you think God is doing? God is intervening. God is showing himself to the northern kingdom as a way to call these people to repentance. And so the presence of these prophets is an indicator that God is still able and willing to accept the northern kingdom back, even though they've had wicked kings. He's, he's willing to accept them back if they repent and turn back to him. And so I think that's important for us to remember because these miracles and the things that have happened in the northern kingdom, even the famines, um, they weren't necessarily what I would call God's judgment on them. It was God's warning about judgment that was coming because the judgment on the northern kingdom is going to happen in 722 B.C. And in 722 B.C., it's around chapter 17 or 18, in 2 Kings, it's when the northern kingdom ceases to exist. Okay, so that's a key date to remember, 722 B.C. 722 B.C. 722 B.C. Assyrian conquest, 722 B.C. So that's, that's one of those, when you think about biblical history, that's one of those dates that's a key date to remember. You might not remember a lot of dates for these kings and, and that kind of thing. But uh, 722 B.C. and of course when we get into the deportations of the, of the southern kingdom, those are key dates to remember too. Um, but this evening we're going to be looking at the first king here, King Jehoram. King Jehoram or Joram of Judah. Now... We can't get this guy confused with King Jehoram of Israel. They're reigning at the same time. Okay? And so, if you look at your text in front of you, chapter 8, verse 16, you'll notice it uses the name Joram there. Now, in the fifth year of Joram. Okay, the, the son of Ahab, that's Je, uh, Jehoram. That's, so that's like a, a nickname and, and their full name. And so we have to be careful that we always keep the context of the passage in view. Oftentimes it's going to say something like Joram or Jehoram, king of Judah, king of Israel, or it'll say Jehoram, son of Ahab. And you know, as soon as it says Ahab, you know that it's talking about the northern kingdom, or he's going to say Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, and you know it's going to be talking about the southern kingdom. Okay, but in verse 16, you have both of them mentioned here. All right? So uh, let's, let's look at King Jehoram of Judah here, fifth, the fifth king of Judah. And uh, this is the general information. He's going to reign from about um, 553 to, uh, excuse me, 853 to 841, 853 to 841, so that's going to be about eight years in length. 
And um, the passages that, are the, that focus on him are going to be here in 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 16 through 24, and then 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 21, verses 1 through 20. Stanley's already got me mixed up once about 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, and so I'll probably mess that up again here. But uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 21, verses 1 through 20, and 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 16 through 24. So let's take a look. Did everybody get that, by the way? Everybody got that? I think it's that, that one there. Um, if you can see that. If you can't, you can copy from somebody else here. But let me start talking about some specific points that, that um, were, were given here in the Bible. Notice in verse 16, it says, Now in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, now listen to it, look at it, Jehoshaphat being then the king of Judah. Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, became king. So Jehoram of Judah is going to become king in Judah in the fifth year of Jehoram of Israel. Okay? Now, that's complicated enough, but also I want you to know in verse 16 here that it indicates that in Judah, there is a co-regency between Jehoshaphat and his son Jehoram. Did you, did you see that there? I tried to emphasize it when I read. And right in the middle of the verse, it says, Jehoshaphat being then the king of Israel. He's the king. He's still the king when Jehoram becomes king, and we call that a co-regency. Uh, so let me give you, let's go think backwards here, go a little bit of history up to this point. King Jehoram of Israel became king in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat's going to rule for a total of 25 years. This means Jehoshaphat and King Jehoram of Israel overlapped for about seven years. This co-regency that's mentioned here in verse 16 between Jehoshaphat and his son Jehoram is going to be about two years in length. It's going to be about two years long. Um, this uh, co-regency is going to uh, provide Judah with stability. Uh, if you remember when we were talking about some of the kings of Israel, it was very tumultuous when, when kings changed. You'd have a king that reigned eight, 12, even longer years, and he'd have a son, and next thing you know, his son reigns two years, maybe three years, and he's, he's gone because there's a lot of turmoil in there. You had a, a lot of coups in there where someone comes in and kills the king and, and kills all his uh, descendants and you have a whole other dynasty set up in the northern kingdom. What we have here with this co-regency is, is this whole idea of having turmoil and instability between one king and another is eliminated because Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, is already co-king, so to speak. He's already uh, partaking in the, in the duties of a king there. And so that's important to note. Verse 17 now says, He was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned eight years in Jerusalem. Now, I would take this to mean that he's going to be either 33 or 34 when he's actually alone. So the first two years of that are going to be co-regency with his father. And so while he's reckoned to have ruled eight years altogether, six years of those are going to be on his own. Two years of those will be co-regency years. 
As we continue on to verse 18, we see uh, his spiritual status being described. It says, now remember, we're talking about Joram of Judah. It says, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab became his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So he's going to act just like the kings of Israel acted. So that means he's going to be a wicked man. His wife is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And uh, if, if just hold here real quick, why don't you turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 18. 2 Chronicles chapter 18. And look at verse 1. 2 Chronicles 18.1 says, Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor. And notice this last phrase. And he allied himself by marriage with Ahab. So the families of Jehoshaphat and the family of Ahab were joined in marriage. And in this uh, is what we see here in our text in 2 Kings 8, that King Jehoram of Judah married Ahab and Jezebel's daughter. Now, the name of this woman, the wife of Jehoram, is Athaliah. And we're going to find out that she is nothing but trouble. She's a wicked, wicked woman but we'll come to that later okay she's just going to be a total total thorn in the side of judah so that's the spiritual status but notice however even though he's a wicked wicked man as the king of judah we see in verse 19 that the lord is not going to remove him from the throne it says in verse 19, however, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant, since he had promised him to give a lamp to him through his sons always. So God is not going to remove Jehoram from the throne of Judah, not because he wants to show mercy on him in particular, but because of the promise he made to David. Now, what's the promise he made to David? What do we call it? Davidic covenant is what we call it. Now, we're going to look at that a little bit later. But let's, let's keep on going. Just note that Jehoram's so bad that he could be removed from the throne by God. But God says, I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to do that because of the promise I made to David. As we come down through verses 20 through 22, we see that Jehoram's reign over Judah is marked, it's marked by these vassal states rebelling against him. It says in verse 20, In his days, that's in Jehoram's days, Edom revolted under the hand of Judah, and made a king over themselves. Um, now, at this time, or up to this time, Edom did not have a king uh, over them. They did not have an Edomite king. So turn back with me to 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings chapter 22 Verse 47. 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 47. Now, this is going to be during the time of Jehoshaphat as king. But look what it says, verse 47. Now, there was no king in Edom. A deputy was king. Now, that's not saying that there was an Edomite deputy that was king. That's talking about a deputy from the Jehoshaphat 
uh, royal court as the one who's ruling over Edom. So uh, when, we're, when we see this, this rebellion in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 20, when we see this rebellion, um, they are rebelling against the rule of Judah over them. Judah had a ruler uh, who was over them. The Edomites didn't have their own king. Well, they revolted, uh, kicked that ruler out, and now they made themselves their own, they, they appointed their own king. So <clears throat> let's go back to 2 Kings here and pick it up in verse 21. Verse 21, it says, Then Joram, that's the king we're talking about, crossed over Zaire and all his chariots with him. And he arose by night and struck the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of his chariots. But his army fled to their tents. So they didn't, they didn't win that battle. Verse 22, so Edom revolted against Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. So Edom, the kingdom of Edom and the kingdom of Libna both revolted during the reign of King Jehoram of Judah. Then we get, the, we get the end of Jehoram here in verses 23 through 24. The rest of the acts of Jehoram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoram, or Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his uh, fathers in the city of David, and Ahaziah his son became king in his place. And so that's, that's his death. Now, Let's turn to 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 21, because this gives us a little bit more information about uh, King Jehoram of Judah. And, and it gives us some bad information about him, in fact. He, he, was, he was a nasty piece of work. So 2 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1 says, Then Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Jehoram his son became king in his place. Verse 2, He, that is King Jehoram, had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, as are Yahu, Michael, and Shephatiah. All these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. So he's got six brothers. So there's seven sons, seven sons of Jehoshaphat. Jehoram's got six brothers. Look at verse 3. This tells us about how Jehoshaphat treated his sons. Their father gave them many, many gifts of silver, gold, and precious things with fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. So uh, Jehoshaphat treated his sons well. He honored his sons. He gave them gifts and he even placed them as rulers of these fortified cities of Judah. But the firstborn, Jehoram, is going to be king. Now, as soon as Jehoshaphat is off the scene, look what happens in verse 4. Now when Jehoram had taken over the kingdom of his father and made himself secure, he killed all his brothers with the sword and some of the rulers of Israel also. So first thing he does after he becomes king and he, he stabilizes the kingdom, so I'm, I'm going to suspect this is after all the ceremony and celebration when you, when you uh, have a new king. First thing he does is he kills his brothers. So he kills all six of them. So, and I, I would probably take that to mean he not just, not only killed them, but he killed their family as well. That's, that's usually what happens. So he, he is a wicked, wicked guy. You know, life doesn't mean too much to him when it gets in his way. And, and 
you see um, in verses 5 and 6, it talks more about his sinful nature. But look at verse 7. We've seen this in 2 Kings, but look what it says here. 2 Chronicles 21, 7. It says, Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant which he made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. Now, I think it's interesting to compare 2 Kings 8.19, which is the record of this, and this verse here. And when we compare them, this is what we're, we're going to find some differences. The first difference we find is in 2 Kings, it, it talks about God not being willing to destroy Judah. Where here it doesn't say Judah, does it? says the house of David. So what we learn from that is Judah equals the house of David. Okay, same thing. So when you see the house of David, you can think Judah. Um, the second difference we see is that in our passage here in 2 Chronicles, it says because of the covenant, God's not going to destroy Judah, the house of David, because of the covenant he made with David. Whereas in 2 Kings, it says, for the sake of his servant David. And so what I want us to see here is in our verse here in 2 Chronicles, it specifically says the covenant. The covenant that is made with David. Uh, the word covenant, bereath in Hebrew is a word that means something like a promise, but it's, it's heavier than that. It's, it's more intense than that. It's, it's a legally binding oath is what it is. And when we look at this word covenant, it's used a lot in the Old Testament, about 287 times. And it can refer to covenants between men, that men make with other men, or it can refer to covenants that are made between God and man. The particular covenant that is mentioned here, though, is the Davidic covenant. And I told you we were going to look at that. So let's put, just hold a finger here and turn back to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter seven, and we're going to start in verse eight. We're going to go eight to sixteen. Second Samuel chapter seven, verse eight to sixteen. Verse eight. Um, let me let me prepare you for this. This is going to be God speaking through Nathan the prophet. Okay says, now therefore, thus you, prophet Nathan, shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name. Now, what's that sound like? What covenant does that sound like? Abrahamic covenant, doesn't it? I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. Now, listen to this in verse 10, because this also sounds like Abrahamic covenant. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Uh, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. Now, who was the main opponent of the children of Israel in the book of Judges? What's, what do we call those people? Philistines. Philistines were the ones who were always after them. 
So God's saying, look, this is what he's promising David. This is my promise to you. I'm going to remove this affliction. It's not going to be like then where there was constant conflict. Back to verse, where are we at? Verse 11. It says, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Now, does that mean that the Lord's going to get a real estate agent and secure a lot and then find a contractor and build David a palace? Is that what it's talking about there when he says, I will build, I will make a house for you? Is that what he's saying? No, that's, that's not what he's saying at all. He's referring to a lasting dynasty, a kingdom for David. The Lord's the one who's going to do this. Verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant. Notice that's singular. Descendant after you who will come forth from you. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So what we see in these last few verses that we have just looked at is there's parts of this prophecy that are looking to a near fulfillment. But there's other parts of this prophecy that are looking for a far distant fulfillment. Now, I think the only thing here that's about a, a near fulfillment is going to be verses 14 and 15. When he says, I will be a father to him. Okay. Uh, and he will be a son to me when he commits iniquity. I will correct him with the rod of men. I think that's talking about Solomon. I think that's who is being referenced here, and that God would not remove the kingdom from Solomon, or, or remove Solomon from the kingdom. That's probably the better way to say it, because the kingdom's forever. Kings aren't forever, but the kingdom is forever. Everything else here I take as messianic. So even in verse 13 when it says, He shall build a house for my name, I think that the, the phrase house, uh, build a house here, is just like the phrase at the end of verse 11 where it says the Lord will make a house for you. I think it's not talking about a structure. It's talking about he's going he's gonna to build a kingdom for God. So I think that's not only talking about Messiah. I think it's talking about the millennial uh, kingdom where this is the kingdom of, of Jesus Christ on the earth where he rules and then at the end of the millennium he turns the kingdom over to the father um, so i i think now there's some people who are going to take verses 13 14 and 15 as referring to solomon i i i just think 13 fits better with a millennial fulfillment than it does solomon but be that as it may, verse 16 is very clear. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, when we have gone through all this, did you ever hear the word covenant in this entire passage? Did you hear that specific word? Did you read that specific word? Never saw it. Never saw it. So the word covenant is not used in this passage, but we know this is a covenant because... Turn over to chapter 23. David's last words. Chapter 23, verse 5. 
So David's coming to the end of his life here. So we're getting recorded some of the last things that he did and said. Verse 5. It says, Truly is not my house so with God. Now notice the next phrase. For he has made an everlasting what? Covenant with me. David is talking about that promise that we just looked at in chapter 7. He calls it a covenant. So that promise that God made to David in chapter 7 is the Davidic covenant. And notice it's not just a covenant. Notice the word that's qualifying it. It is a everlasting covenant. So there's definitely a, a connection here between chapter 7 and, and this verse in chapter 23. We also see this covenant is alluded to, and we're not going to look at these passages, but it is alluded to in, um, hey James, can you go get me some batteries? My light just went red. It's still working, but I don't know how long it's going to last. Um, this covenant is also alluded to in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 3 through 4. Isaiah 55, verses 3 through 4. And it's alluded to in Psalm 89 verse 3. Psalm 89 verse 3. Um, so these are, these are passages that also bring up the Davidic covenant. Or at least allude to the Davidic covenant. But I want you to see another passage here. Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah chapter 33 verses 20 and 21. Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 20 and 21. Jeremiah 33, 20 and 21. I have no idea. When I get done this, I'll change it. Notice what it says here. Jeremiah 33, verse 20. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed times, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Le Levitical priests, my ministers. So, this is, again is referring to the Davidic covenant. Now, the thing I want you to notice about here is God is saying that the Davidic covenant, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is as sure as the rising and the setting of the sun. If God keeps his covenant to bring the new day and to bring the new night, by the way, has that ever, you know, anybody think about a time in your life when, when you missed, well, you might have missed the sunrise because you were sleeping in or something, but, you know, that, that there, you missed a day. I mean, a day just fell off the calendar. Um, no, no. The sun has always risen. It's always been a new day, and it's always been a new night. And God says... If that is true, then it's also true that the Davidic covenant will be sustained and fulfilled. So what we learn from that, a very practical lesson that we learn from that, is that every morning when the sun comes up and every night when the sun goes down, it is a sign that God will be faithful to his covenant that he made with David. So that's two times a day where we can be reminded that the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled. Uh, so that's Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 20 through 20, 
one. I'm going to change my batteries. Okay, so we're reminded of the, the Davidic covenant here. So let's go back to 2 Kings. Actually, let's go back to 2 Chronicles 21. Let me finish that up. 2 Chronicles chapter 21. Still talking about King Jehoram of Judah. And uh, I want to draw your attention to verse 10 here because this repeats some things that we already know, but it gives us a little bit more information. So 2 Chronicles 21.10 says, So Edom revolted against Judah to this day, then Libna revolted at the same time against his rule. Now why did both of these nations and kingdoms revolt against Jehoram against Judah at the same time. What's it say? Because he had forsaken the Lord God of his fathers. So God is bringing these nations against Jehoram because he's followed the path of the kings of Israel and has forsaken uh, Yahweh, uh, the Lord God. And then we're told about his demise. You know, in, in 2 Kings 8, we're just told he sleeps with his, you know, he dies. But this tells us how he dies, and he doesn't die a pleasant death. Look at verse 12. Then a letter came to him from Elijah. Oh, there's Elijah the prophet. So Elijah's still around, saying, Thus says the Lord God of your father David, Because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father, and the ways of Asa, the king of Judah, that would be his grandfather, but have walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and have caused Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot as the house of Ahab played the harlot. And you have also killed your brothers, your own family, who were better than you. So apparently he's the worst of the lot. Verse 14, behold, the Lord is going to strike your people. Talk about his family now. Your sons, your wives, and all your possessions with great calamity. And you will suffer severe sickness, a disease of your bowels, until your bowels come out because of the sickness day by day. Now look at verse 19. Now it came about in the course of time at the end of two years that his bowels came out because of his sickness. So he has been, um, whatever this is, probably started off as some type of dysentery. Okay? It lasts for two years. So at the end of two years that his bowels came out because of his sickness and he died in great pain. And so this is the end of Jehoram. And this was part of uh, him reaping the consequences for his sin. That he dies from this some type of disease of the intestines where uh, he dies because his bowels come out. And so a very painful, painful thing. So that's, that's King Jehoram of Judah. Uh, so let's go back to 2 Kings chapter 8. Oops. 
Did I have any? Did I already do that? And we're going to look at Ahaziah. Ahaziah. So he's the sixth king of Judah. He's the son of Jehoram. Grandfather is Jehoshaphat. Great-grandfather is Asa. Okay, so he's got a godly great-grandfather, godly grandfather, a wicked father. Okay, and, and well, I should say grandfather on one side was a godly man. The grandfather on the other side was Ahab. <laughs> so how would you like to have Ahab and Jezebel as grandparents? <laughs> Think about that one for a while. So this is Ahaziah here. Um, so the dates for him, it's just one year, 841. 841. So he's only going to reign one year. The length of his reign is going to be one year. And... The, the passage, even though he's only going to reign for one year, a lot of things happen in that year. And um, uh, the, the passages that cover his, his reign are going to go from chapter 8, verse 25, to chapter 10, verse 36. So 825 to 1036. Then uh, he's also found in 2 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 1 through 9. 2 Chronicles 22, verses 1 through 9. Okay, well, let's take a, let's take a closer look here at Ahaziah. Um. It says here in verse 25, in the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab. So it's, it's telling us who this Joram is, since there's two of them. Uh, Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel. Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. So he begins in the twelfth year of Jehoram. And the, the name Ahaziah means something like, Yahweh has upheld or Yahweh has established or something, something like that. Uh, in verse 26, we're given a little bit more information about him. It says, Ahaziah was 22 years old. So he was 10 years younger than his father. Then when his father became king, he becomes king at 22. His father became king at 32. He was 22 years old when he became king and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. Now, notice what it says next in verse 26. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. So this is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, Athaliah. So again, I told you she's an important person. Uh, with the kings of uh, Judah... Uh, very often, we, we didn't see it with Jehoram, but very often their mother's name is mentioned. And um, many times that's pretty significant. It certainly is significant here. Now, his spiritual status is given to us in verse 27. It says, he walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of God. Uh, like the house of Ahab had done because he was a son-in-law of the house of Ahab. So he, he's, he is related to Ahab. And so he's just like Ahab. He's a wicked, he's a wicked king. Verse 28. Then when he went with Jehoram, so this is Ahaziah, when he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Haziel, king of Aram, at Ramoth-Gilead. Let me just stop there. Now, remember, it's like a month ago now, that we talked about 
Elisha anointing Haziel to be king of Aram. So you remember that Benadad, Benadad I actually, was the king of Aram. And, and he was sick. And they said, well, go, go talk to Elisha. See if I'm going to get over this. Elisha says to Haziel, he's going to get over it. He will survive the sickness, but he's going to die real soon. And he says, I'm anointing you king of uh, Aram. And Haziel, I, you know, I don't know if he was impatient or whatever, but he took things into his own hands, and so he kills Bendad, and uh, he becomes the king. And so he's the king of Aram. That's, his capital is going to be in Damascus. This is the Arameans. And so we see here that Judah and Israel uh, form an alliance to fight against Aram. And they're going to fight against Aram at Ramoth-Gilead. Now, Ramoth-Gilead is going to be... Um, you know, it'd be nice if all the countries in the Middle East uh, looked like Colorado <laughs> Square, but they don't. <laughs> They're really funny looking, especially during this time. They're funny looking. And the kingdom of Israel has got, it's got like a finger that sticks way up north. Okay, it goes up north. It's just on the west side of the Jordan River. It goes up north. But when you drop down right around the Sea of Galilee, the kingdom of Israel shoots way out to the east, way out to the east. And then it, it cuts down way out there in the desert and heads down south. And that forms almost a 90 degree angle, right angle there. Well, very close to that point, that sort of eastern northern tip of the eastern boundary is this city, Ramoth Gilead. Okay, it's somewhere between 40 and 50 miles from Jezreel, right? Which that's where one of the palaces was for the kings of Israel. So that's where they're at. They're way over. They're in the border. They're in the borderlands. And Ramoth Gilead, and this is where this fighting is going to take place. And it says here that they went there, and it, and it says, the, and the Arameans wounded Joram. So that's the king of Israel. They wounded him. In verse 29, so King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel. Again, 40 or 50 miles away. He had to travel from the battle to go back there, and he's going to go back there to, to recover. Uh, Return to, to Jezreel. Um, uh, to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds which the Arameans had inflicted on him at Ramah when he, he fought against Haziel, king of Aram. Then Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the, king of, uh, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. So Joram... Let me see if I got this right, because this is where I get confused a little bit trying to put these people together. Joram of Israel is whose son? Remember whose son he is? I don't, that's why I'm looking. I'm thinking Ahab. Does that sound right? So that's Ahab's son. That means Athaliah, who is Ahaziah's mother, is the sister of Joram. So Joram is Ahaziah's uncle. So this is Uncle Joram. Okay, Uncle Joram. And he's going down to see Uncle Joram. He's going to go visit him in the royal rehabilitation center as he recovers from his wounds. 
So right there, we, what we want to notice is it, it even seems that Ahaziah is going to be closer to his mother's side of the family, Athaliah, uh, Jezebel. Jezebel's still alive. Jezebel will be closer to them than he is to the other side of the family, the Davidic line. He's going to have more in common. He's going to hang. He goes down to see his uncle as he is uh, getting well in uh, Jezreel. And, uh, and so now we don't see the death of Ahaziah right here. We get into Jehu. Jehu. So let's look at Jehu now. We'll, we'll finish up with Ahaziah here pretty quick. Okay. Well, actually, we're going to finish up with Joram and Ahaziah here real quick. But we need to get into Jehu. Now, I want us to go back, and I want us to remember what, um, oh, what the Lord told Elijah back in 1 Kings chapter 19. This, this will help set a little bit of context here. 1 Kings chapter 19. Of course, this is after Mount Carmel. Uh, this is after Elijah has fled down south. Now he's in the Sinai Peninsula. He's as far away from Ahab and Jezebel as he can possibly get. And this is where he meets the Lord. And uh, in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 15, it says... Uh, the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. So the Lord tells him, you're all the way down here in Sinai. Now you're going to go all the way to the other end of the country. You're going to go as far as Damascus. And when you have arrived, you shall appoint who? Haziel, king over Aram. So this is what the Lord's telling Elijah, this is what's going to happen. Now, Elijah didn't do this. Elisha did it. Elisha's the one who actually did it. But remember when we talked about Elijah and Elisha? When you talk about them, they're really, they, they, their ministries go together. It's like one ministry. So he says, you're going to anoint Haziel king over Aram. Now, in our passage in 2 Kings, who's the king of Aram? Haziel is the king of Aram. And and. Verse 16 of 1 Kings 19, it says, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. Now we're getting, so that's our Jehu right there that we're getting ready to get into. Then it says, and Elisha. So you're going to anoint Haziel. You're going to anoint Jehu as king, Haziel as king of Aram, Jehu as king of Israel, and Elisha as your, as your replacement. But notice what it says in verse 17. It shall come about, excuse me, the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel. So that's telling there's going to be combat and Haziel is going to be leading the army. It shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. And so we've seen Elisha. We just saw not too long ago Haziel. And now we see Jehu. So that's kind of sets the historic context and God's plan for this guy, Jehu. So let's take a look at Jehu. So he's going to be the 10th king of Israel. So this is another dynasty. Okay, this is going to be a new dynasty. Jehu's not related to Omri. He's not related to Ahab. Not related to any of those guys. This is a totally different family. So a new dynasty. He's going to be the 10th king of Israel. Um, he is going to reign from 841 to 814. 841 to 
14. He's going to reign for 28 years. And the, the passage that focuses on him is going to go really from, well, really from chapter, you know, I think I put on the slide there, verse, chapter 9, verse 24 through 12, 21. But he's going to have a lot to do with how Joram and Hezekiah are no longer kings. <laughs> you could say he's going to cause it. He's, he's going to be the one who removes them uh, from their kingdom. And that's what we're going to get to at the beginning of chapter uh, 9. But we're out of time. So our time, our time is up. Our hour is gone. And so let me, let me say, remember, told you this a month ago. We don't have class next week because I'll just be getting back from being away. So we're not going to have class next week. Um, so it'll be whatever the next week is. That's when we'll pick back up our class. But here's, here's what I do want you to do. If I, can, if I can find it here. I wrote it down. Uh, I wrote it down somewhere. Maybe I wrote it down somewhere else. Anyway. What, what I would like you to do um, for, since we're not meeting next me week, what I want you to do instead is I want you to read from chapter 9 here through chapter 17. Okay? Chapter 9 through chapter 17. So instead of coming to class next Thursday, sit down at this time, 6.30, and just read from chapter 9 to chapter 17. And the reason I want you to do that is because chapter 17 is going to record the last king of Israel. So it's going to take us all the way up to 722 B.C. 722 B.C. So it's going to take us all the way up there. And it's going to talk about how the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom. And what you're going to see in these chapters is there's a lot of international maneuvering. Because up to this point, we haven't heard anything about the Assyrians. But when we get closer there to chapter 17, we're going to hear a lot about the Assyrians. Um, in fact, we're going to see examples where um, Israel and Aram, who are at war right now, they're going to form an alliance to go against the Assyrians. And do you know who they want to join them? Judah. They're going to want Judah to join them. And... Uh, We'll, we'll get into all that because it's pretty fascinating. It's in, it's in that context between Judah, Israel, Aram, Assyria, and even Egypt. It's in that context where we have the prophecy in Isaiah that the Lord is going to give a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So it's in that it's in this context that you'll be reading. So uh, read through those chapters, and that will, that will give you a good picture of uh, some of the things we're going to talk about. So that's all we got for this evening. Let me pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we give you thanks again for your goodness to us, for your word. And, and Lord, as we look at these different events and look at the different people that we see here uh, Lord, one thing that we're always reminded is how gracious and merciful you are to uh, these people who so often turn their back upon you and you keep coming after them, calling them to repentance. And uh, we, thank, we are so thankful that you are a God of mercy, a God of love, and a God of long-suffering. 
And uh, Father, we're also thankful for the fact that you are a God who keeps his word, keeps his covenants. And even as we talked about this evening, as the new day starts and the new night begins, we're reminded that you are faithful to your promises. And so help us as we go through that twice a day that we think about you and how you are a faithful God. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Get there, Suze.